All right, let's pray, and then we'll get started in the Word. Lord, uh, thankfully, actually, we're in the Word already with uh, the music that we're singing, Lord. But, Father, I pray that you will teach us today. Um, Lord, you're, I'm an expert on this stuff in one way, and that is that I struggle with it, and so I deal with it regularly. Uh, but, Lord, we need you to teach us. We're going to talk about the taming of the tongue, which, Lord, I'm, I'm 46 years old, been a, past, been a, a pastor for a while, been uh, through seminary, been a Christian for a long time. And yet, I struggle with the tongue. And so, Lord, I think that's uh, what the majority of us in here would say. So, Lord, teach us today. Teach us um, what we need to do. And then, Father, I pray you'd equip us to do it. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. All right, first we're going to read through the whole of uh, James chapter 3 so you can see it in context. And then we will break down uh, verse by verse and talk about it. James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praises and cursings. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness." What we're going to look at today is what is mature faith. Mature faith has the right motivation in service. Let's look with me at James chapter 3 verses 1. Well, just verse 1 for now. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now let me ask you, why in the world is James discouraging people from teaching the Word of God? Uh, Did he not know that 2,000 years later we would have a very hard time filling all the teaching positions that we need to fill in the church? 
Well, let me tell you, it used to be, and sometimes still is, uh, a, a thing that is sought after for the sake of prestige and for the sake of stroking one's ego. Uh, I had a former pastor who I will not name um, because I'm going to say things that are less than kind, but let me tell you, this guy had the largest ego of any human being I've ever come across. Now, that's saying a lot because I'm a musician, and I play with other musicians. And if you don't know, musicians are, are, tend to be uh, very prideful people if they're good at what they do and they don't know the Lord. So I've been around some arrogant people before, but this pastor was in a class by himself. Um, it was a position of ego for him. He loved it. He loved the attention. He had a, uh, he had a fake doctorate that he, lo- he loved being called doctor. You know what a fake doctorate is, right? It's one of those that you can do a few you know, months of work for and, and get in the mail and you don't have to actually learn anything. Well, he had that fake doctorate, and I'm telling you, that guy was so proud of himself um, that once I got to know him, it was a little bit disturbing for me to my faith. I had a senior adult pastor at this church where I worked, and he took me aside one day and he said, as, as you see some of the things you're going to see, in this church, don't let it shake your faith. And I thought, yeah, that's crazy. It's not going to shake my faith to see uh, that people aren't perfect. I already know people aren't perfect. But when the teaching pastor that I listen to every week, when I when I found out some of the things uh, about him and how he dealt with his staff, uh, it did shake my faith a little bit because I thought, man, if the pastor is this guy uh, and he's this disingenuous. Uh, That just makes me wonder about things. So that old senior adult guy was smarter than I was and wiser than I was. But we don't want to place our faith in our pastors or our leaders or our teachers because they can and will eventually disappoint us. Now, we need to get a guy who is trustworthy. (laughs) You need to know who you're allowing to preach, and you need to know that he has a life consistent with what he's preaching. But you can't follow that guy as you follow Christ. Jesus had this to say about the Pharisees who liked attention and did what they did to stroke their ego. He said in Matthew 23, verse 5 through 7, Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. Phylacteries are little wooden boxes that would hold scripture that they would put on their arm or on their forehead. Anyway, it says that they would make them big and their tassels long so that everybody would spot a priest coming. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbis by others. So folks, sometimes people get in a teaching position or a pastor position because they want attention and they want affirmation. And that is why James is telling us, hey, don't look for that. Don't many of you become teachers. A New Testament Christian teacher was like a rabbi at first, right? I mean, that's the frame of reference that they had. And so when the New Testament church was young, they thought of these teachers in the church like they thought of rabbis. A rabbi was a title of great honor. If a rabbi, check this out, if a rabbi and one's parents were captured by an enemy, duty demanded that the rabbi be ransomed before your parents, (laughs) all right? So that was a position of respect for these folks. It is an incredible responsibility to stand before people and unpack and explain the word of God. So if you want to teach, 
then by all means teach, but do it with the right motivation and the right preparation. God takes it very seriously, and so should we. We should do it well, or we shouldn't do it. Now, there are preachers that have different abilities um, than I have. I'm never going to preach as well as J.D. Greer does, but I'm going to preach as well as I can, and I'm going to work on it, and I'm going to study, and I'm going to prepare, and I'm going to come and preach as well as I can. And then in a year, I'm going to preach better than I do now because I'm going to practice and work on what I do. So if you teach the Word of God, do it to the best of your ability and do it for the right motivation. Those who use their tongues to distort the Word of God and lead people astray will be judged for it harshly. But if you're prepared, faithful, and rightly motivated, then don't be afraid to teach because the church needs you. So James is saying, let not many of you become teachers. And I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment if your motivations are less than pure. James 3 verse 2 says, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. I am glad that James says we all stumble in many ways because James and 1 John especially are really all about if you're a believer, you're going to walk like a believer. (laughs) They say, don't sin, do right, act like what you are. And I agree with that and I'm glad they say it. But then they both say, but we're not perfect. And I'm glad they put that in there because if I just read, hey, act like what you are, do what you're supposed to do, then I'd say, man, am I even saved? Because I don't always do that. I'm not consistent all the time. But the other thing is don't, don't oversteer. You know how when you, when you have a problem in a car and you're going the wrong way, you're going off the road, sometimes you'll get scared and you'll oversteer and you'll cause calamity. We don't want to go the other way too much. Don't excuse yourself from the work of God because you're not perfect or because of past sin. Guys, I've talked to people before in churches that have said to me, I've been a Christian for 30 years, but I don't serve in the church because, and then they tell me some sin in their past life. They said, because I was whatever, because I did this thing or that thing, I am not worthy to serve in the church. Now, Satan loves that lie because he'll get a believer who is equipped by the power of the Holy Spirit And say, you don't need to work in the body. You don't need to benefit the church. Because remember when you did so and so, you're no longer qualified. That is not how we need to operate. We need to get forgiveness from God. And then we need to benefit the church. So don't excuse yourself from working the church because of past sin. He says, anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. Able to keep the whole body in check. Now the word perfect here refers to maturity. If you are perfect, then you are mature and complete and not lacking in anything. I don't think he means sinless perfection. Although he may, he may be saying, hey, if you can control the tongue perfectly, then you're perfect. Because he knows that none of us can perfectly control the tongue. But I think he's talking about maturity here. Do you want to be a spiritually mature and useful servant? I think any of us who are truly believers would say, yes, we want to be spiritually mature and useful for the body. Well, if your answer is not really, let me tell you, I, I don't think <laughs> that people who say, I don't want to be spiritually mature. I want to do the minimum possible required to get myself into heaven by the skin of my teeth. Well, I would reevaluate because I don't think that's where you're headed. But 
if like the rest of us who are really believers, you say, yes, I do want to be spiritually mature, then work on taming the tongue. Because if you can manage that, then you can probably get everything else in order too. Because the tongue is so very difficult to control, as we will see here in a minute. So mature faith has the right motivation in service. But mature faith also tames the tongue. And we're going to hear from James how difficult this is. Look with me at the power of the tongue in verses 3 through 8. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. And here we're going to hear exactly what James thinks about the tongue. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So when I was preparing to preach this, I thought, man, I wish I had a better control over my tongue so that I could uh, preach to you what I regularly practice. But thank goodness, James says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James' point is not hard to see here. You know, the bit, the rudder, and the spark are all small things that have power way out of proportion to their size. Think with me of the recent example that I think we have all seen of what happened to Judge and now Justice Kavanaugh. There were people who used their tongues to try to burn his whole world down. They accused him of horrible things. And now, you know, two of those folks have come out and said, well, we didn't even know him. We were just lying. The tongue can destroy. The tongue can destroy a person's career. It can destroy a person's life. You know, they say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie. Words can decimate you. They can destroy your family. They can destroy your ministry. You know, there are uh, things that I just will not do for fear of the tongue. Um, Jennifer and I used to work closely together, and we would spend time working on music. But you know where we spend time working on music? In here, at the piano with all the building open and people walking through. Um, we went to a music conference one time, and Jennifer and I went, and we asked somebody else to go with us. Why? Because of the power of the tongue. Now, was anything bad going to go on there? No, but perception is important. You need to live in a way that nobody can give a credible accusation of you doing wrong about anything, and that's awfully hard to do, but we need to do our best to do that. Because, uh, you know, I don't keep records of what I do every single day like Judge Kavanaugh did. And yet he was hardly able to refute every specific claim, right? You can't prove you didn't do things. One time my wife and I got a, uh, a letter supposedly sent to us from a health insurance company. And they called us and they said, we are going to discontinue your health insurance. And we said, why? And they said, because you didn't respond to our letter. And we said, we didn't get your letter. And they said, prove that you didn't get our letter. <laughs> and I'm going, well, how do I do that? 
did I set up a video camera in my mailbox for the past six months and I'm going to send you the footage? You know, it's hard to prove that you didn't do a thing. And the tongue can be used to set your world on fire. How many churches have been ruined by the destructive power of the tongue? Now let me ask you, how does the tongue destroy? It destroys through blasphemy and profanity, but that's more of an inner destruction. That's a you destroying your own spiritual walk by using blasphemy and profanity and things like that. But I tell you, it destroys other people through gossip, slander, complaining, criticizing, and innuendo. All those things can be used to destroy other people. Now let me ask you, is there a place for criticizing? Yeah, there is. There's a place for criticizing. If I ever stand up here and say something that you think is contrary to the Word of God, I want you to criticize. But here's how I want you to do it. I want you to come to me and say, Brother, I think maybe you got this wrong. Let's take a look at this and let me help you with this. Or would you reconsider this? Instead, that's the right way to criticize. That's the right way to use the tongue to build up. The wrong way is go to lunch and say, Did you hear what that dummy said? He's wrong and he doesn't know anything. We should... Quit going there. We should tell our neighbors that he doesn't know anything. That's the wrong way to use the tongue. Probably only a tiny percentage of our criticizing is actually justified, though. When it is justified, we need to take it to the right place. And guys, I'm preaching to me, too. I criticize sometimes in an unhelpful way. I criticize sometimes where I'm not taking it to the person, where I'm just complaining. And I'm guilty of that just like many of us are. Now let's look at the hypocrisy of the tongue, verses 9 through 12. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Folks, I pride myself in, and anytime you start a sentence like that, you're headed for disaster. But I pride myself in never giving my kids a reason to doubt what I have taught them is what I wholeheartedly believe. Um, My children may tell you a lot of bad things about me. I mean, I don't think they will, but they could if they were being 100% honest. But I don't think any of them would tell you that Steve's a hypocrite. He doesn't actually believe what he preaches. But James gets me here. Now, not that I actually curse people. I'm going to leave that to the, you know, the coven of witches in New York that were trying to curse Judge Kavanaugh and and the president. I'll leave the cursing uh, to those folks. But I do criticize sometimes, and I'm not always kind in my speech. You know who I'm talking about when I talk about anybody? I'm talking about people who are made in God's image. And that's what James is pointing out to us here. The answer to James' questions about the spring and the fruit tree are that sometimes the tongue of the believer can produce both good and bad things, but it should not be so if we want to be consistent. But you know, one thing is great. You can't do both of those things at one time. You can't encourage somebody and build them up and compliment them and spur them on to righteousness We can't stir one another up to good works like the Bible tells us to and criticize and complain at the same time. Uh, I used to, 
well, I'll save this for later, but I used to try to focus on not doing a thing rather than doing the good thing, and that doesn't work. So sometimes, folks, if you feel yourself becoming critical or if you hear yourself becoming critical, instead of just saying, I'm going to try to stop that, instead start being edifying. Start saying good and encouraging things. Focus on speaking positive, kind, and encouraging words, and there won't be nearly as many opportunities to speak harmful and destructive words. So mature faith tames the tongue, and we all are working on that, aren't we? But mature faith is also marked by wisdom. Now, there are two kinds of wisdom that James is going to talk about in the rest of this chapter. The first kind of wisdom is false wisdom. This is in verses 13 through 16. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Folks, I have worked with various uh, pastors in my, in my life, and I have found two very different kinds of pastors. One uh, was exemplified in, in how Brother Brandon and I worked together. When I got here... I told him, I said, brother, I want to come and serve as the worship pastor, but I feel like God is drawing me, leading me to a preaching ministry. And I said, I want you to understand that before I come here. And he said, I get it. And I said, now, I would like to ask you for opportunities to preach occasionally so that God can continue working in me to prepare me for a preaching ministry. He said, okay, good, sounds good. He said, now I'm going to have to get to know you a little better and understand what you're going to say before I let you say it, (laughs) which is wise on his part. But he gave me opportunities to preach. Now, people who are not confident in their calling will not let you do that because there is selfish ambition and and bitterness there. Uh, I also interviewed one time, a long time ago, with a pastor And he said, come and lead worship for me on Sunday. And I did. And everything went well. And after the service, he said, man, that was great. We're going to talk this week. Well, he didn't call me that week. And he didn't call me the next week. And I thought, that's weird. You know, he seemed to like me. I don't know what happened. And so I finally called him and I said, brother, did did you change your mind? Are we not going to talk? And he said, well, I did change my mind. And let me tell you why. He said, the last worship pastor I had, some people liked him. And then when I got to a point where I couldn't work with him anymore, I had to ask him to leave. And when I asked him to leave, he started a lot of trouble in the church for me. He went around to people and he said, that pastor is so mean. He fired me and it was wrong. He did me wrong. And you ought to be mad at him. Well, that pastor would not hire another worship pastor to work with him after that. He said, it's not you. I'm just not going to hire anybody. I'm going to get a volunteer out of the congregation who sings pretty well because I don't think that he'll be able to have as much power as a worship pastor can have. And so that guy was so nervous about controlling everything that he wouldn't let anybody else be on ministry staff with him, okay? And that is the kind of destruction that can come from selfish ambition. It says that you will find disorder in every evil practice there. If you think you could do it better, whatever it is, 
if you're sitting out there and you're going, man, I could pick better songs. Or when I go to work, man, my manager doesn't know what he's doing. I could do that better. Be careful of that because when you decide that you're smarter than everybody you work with and you're better than the people that God has put you under their authority, that may very well be pride and envy and selfish ambition working in your heart there. So check yourself. Verses 17 through 18, though, tell us what godly true wisdom is. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So true wisdom is pure, pure in motive, pure by lacking the self-interest and envy and jealousy of the false witness, of the false um, wisdom. Peace-loving. You know, peace is not the ultimate good. There are things more important than peace. Uh, For example, correct doctrine is more important than peace. I would like to have a good relationship with another pastor and with another church. But folks that are preaching things that aren't true, that are heretical, we're not going to work with them. We're not going to have fellowship with them because there's something more important than peace. But where you can have peace, you ought to have peace. And true wisdom is peace-loving. We don't need to have lack of peace over anything that doesn't have a great deal of substance to it. It says that true wisdom is considerate. Considerate means that we prefer one another. We prefer what is best for the future, not what is necessarily most comfortable to us right now. That's true wisdom. True wisdom is submissive. God put you under the authority that you're under. Wherever that is in whatever uh, stage of life that is, If there is authority over you, God put you in that authority system. So submit to it. God will change it when he's ready to change it. Uh, Folks, I worked with a a music guy one time um, that was a great singer. I'm talking about he could have been on, uh, you know, America's Got Talent or one of those shows. Great singer. And he knew little to nothing about instrumental music. And I was working with him, and I did the instrumental music. And sometimes he would ask me to do things with instrumental music that weren't the right things that didn't make sense. I would very respectfully say, have you considered this? And then tell him why. And then sometimes he would say, well, just do what I, do what I asked you to do. And I would say, I'll do it. And I would do it to the best of my ability. Because when God puts you under authority, you respect that and you do what you're asked to do, right? And if we could work that way in the church, we'd get along so much better, guys. People hate authority these days. I'm talking about it's hard to get people to submit to anything. That's why it's so important, guys, to rear your children and your grandchildren in such a way that they understand authority. Because when they get older and you're no longer their authority, God is still going to be their authority. And they need to be able to submit to God. One time when Stephanie was a youngster, she came up to me and she was kind of kind of checking out the family dynamic and she had heard some sermons on wives and husbands and she came up to me and she says, uh, Dad, how's this work? Um, we three kids, you and Mommy are the boss of us, right? And I said, right. <laughs> and she said, okay, so then you're the boss of Mommy, right? And I said, well, not exactly. but <laughs> And I tried to explain how there is an order in the home and, and God, uh, the buck stops with me. The responsibility, if we make a dumb decision, I'm going to get the one that gets in trouble for it because God has put me in that place. 
And so I tried to explain that to a kid, but you know how kids are. So she goes, okay, so you're in charge. Um, she says, so you don't have a boss, do you? <laughs> I said, well, no, I promise you I do. I am the, under the authority of God himself, and God is, is, uh, has absolute authority over me. And then at work, I have people who I have to answer to. So as long as you're breathing in and out, you've got to answer to somebody. And we need to learn to submit to it because God has ordained the power structures that exist in the church and outside the church. He says that true wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. You know, this is the same guy that said, show me your faith by your works. He says, if you're going to have true wisdom, you're going to show that true wisdom in good works. It is impartial. I think we covered that one pretty well a couple of weeks ago. We don't need to see people as some are valuable, some are not valuable, depending on what color they are, depending on how wealthy they are. Don't show partiality. And it also says that true wisdom is sincere. So we don't do what we do to get the praise of men. We do what we do because we want the praise of God the Father. He says, sow peace and reap righteousness. So mature faith is marked by wisdom. So now that we've seen what James has to say about this stuff, what do we do? Uh, well, the first thing is tame the tongue. And that is, uh, that's not something you're going to accomplish this week. That is going to be a lifelong process. But actually work on it. You know, folks, I've heard many people say, well, this is just the way I am. This is the way God made me. God made me hot-tempered where I can't control my tongue. Or I was, uh, you know, it's Veterans Day. Some people say, I was in the service and I learned to talk a certain way there and now it's ingrained in me and what, what are you going to do? Well, what you're going to do is what you do with every other sin. You deal with it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do the good instead of just trying to avoid the bad. Uh, folks, I learned a while back in my relationship with Christ that if there is a sin that, is, that I'm struggling with, Instead of focusing on the sin and saying, I'm not going to do that again. Instead, focus on my relationship with Christ. And then, six months later, I'd look back and go, whoa, that sin's not a problem anymore. It's in the rearview mirror. It's gone. That's like if you're on a diet. You don't make a big, wonderful chocolate cake and sit it on your counter and go, I'm not going to eat that. <laughs> you don't dwell on that. You dwell on the good things, right? You try to become active. You do what you, can, you eat what you can enjoy. And so if you're trying to deal with your tongue, let me give you that, that solid advice. Say good things, and it'll take the place of those bad things. Pray for and pursue true wisdom. James showed us what false wisdom is, what worldly, demonic wisdom is, and then he showed us what true wisdom is. Well, where do we find the true wisdom? We find true wisdom in the Word of God. I was encouraged this week to find out uh, some of our folks are, are doing our Bible reading plan that I didn't even know were reading the, the Bible with us. I'm glad that you're doing that. That is a pursuit of wisdom. Also, pursue wisdom in the church. And I don't mean in the building. You're not going to soak up wisdom from being in these four walls. I mean you're going to soak up wisdom by hanging around people with wisdom. Um, Brother Don would not want me to say this, but Brother Don has been coming to our small group, and every single week I am soaking up wisdom from this brother. He has maturity, he has wisdom, he has experience, and I benefit from that. So find wisdom in the church. And also then experience. Guys, experience is the source of wisdom that we just can't replicate. But you know what? It doesn't have to be all your own experience. I was just saying that I benefit from the experience of Brother Don. Uh, when I told you a moment ago that the way to 
uh, shake off persistent sin is not to concentrate on that sin, but to concentrate on your relationship with Christ. I've learned that through experience, but you can learn it from me just saying it. (laughs) And then you can benefit from my experience. So we gain experience from the word and from the brethren. Now, if you want to have true wisdom, let me tell you, the beginning of wisdom is the gospel. So let me explain what that is. We may have some people here who don't know for certain if you fell over dead in the next 10 minutes that you'd go to heaven. We were looking at Sunday school this morning about how sometimes people presume that they can wait till tomorrow. People presume that they can wait till next week, next year. Guys, we're not promised tomorrow. So if you're here today and you don't know for certain that if you died, you'd go to heaven, let me tell you how you can know. And folks, I've had people tell me, you can't know for sure, but uh, the Apostle John says, these things have I written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. And so I'm going to go with John's word. I think he's right. Let me tell you how you can know. What the gospel is, is that we were at odds with God. Why? Because of sin. Sin put us in a bad relationship with God. God is our maker. He has the authority to tell us to do whatever in the world he wants to tell us. God said, here's what I want you to do. Man said, nope, too bad. I'm going to do my own thing. Well, then we're under condemnation and judgment from God as we should be. Well, God solved that problem. He didn't start that problem. He didn't cause that problem, but he did solve it by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And what Jesus did was he lived a perfect and righteous life. He tamed the tongue (laughs) from the second he could speak until his death and continuing on in eternity after his resurrection. He has never said anything that wasn't supposed to be said. I can't even imagine what that is like. But he lived a perfect life, fulfilling all righteousness. And what the gospel is, is that we can trade I can trade my sin and my shame and my separation for his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, about 18 through 21, explains this to us. It says that God made Jesus Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. So the gospel is we can take our sin, our separation, our failure, and trade it for Christ's righteousness. He pays for it on the cross And we come into a relationship with the Father. If you say that's too good to be true, it is too good, but it is true. So let me tell you, if you're here today and you don't know for certain if you died, you'd go to heaven, don't leave here in that same condition. There is simply no reason to. Come up here and talk with me. Guys, I can't save you, but I can sure introduce you to the one who can save you. So as we leave today, let's consider if we want to become good and faithful servants We need to focus on taming the tongue. And guys, you know what? It'll make a whole lot better church if we focus on that as well. Because we will stir one another up. Did you know the Bible tells us to stir one another up? With the tongue, we're supposed to stir one another up to good works and righteousness. So let's use our tongue for that purpose.